The sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Hear now God's holy word. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we praise you for this passage. We praise you for your spirit who you have promised to be here and to accompany the preaching and the reading and the listening of the word. We ask that your spirit would do a good work in our hearts this day. Help us to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Help us to be rebuked where we need to be rebuked. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Who are you? That's a a song. That's not what I'm thinking of though. (laughs) Who are you? It used to be a very simple question. Very simple, easily answered question. You know, what is your identity? Who do you, who are you? You're a man, you're a woman, you're this, you're that. Now, identity has become, your identity has become something that is not outside of you, but your identity is something that is inside of you. You can identify pretty much as every, anything you want to identify as. And so when I was growing up, we had, in high school, you had these sort of groups. Okay? You had like football team and the band team, the band team, they weren't team, the band, and you had the theater group, okay? And these groups did not get along with one another, okay? There was an identity. I was a football player, so I hated everybody in band. I really hated everybody in theater, okay? So that's how it went, right? Like, now imagine if somebody from the theater group's like, you know what, I identify as a football player. And they just show up at football practice one day. They just identify as a football player. This is the world we live in, okay? There's no objective identifying anymore. People are whoever they want to be. In their minds, they create their own reality. This should not surprise us. When you separate yourselves from God, when you separate yourselves from yourself from his law, from some transcendent law, there are no longer any fixed norms. Everything is fluid. Everything is malleable. At least that's the way people view it. So you create your own identity, okay? You make it up as you go along. If you want to be this person, you can be that person. If you want to be Native American and you have no Native American blood in you or very, 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 very little Native American blood, you just say, hey, I'm Native American. And everyone's like, oh, sure, she's Native American. I think you guys know who I'm talking about. All right? So anyway, you can just do these sorts of things, right? I mean, this is how we live. There's nothing above us telling us who we are. Everything, who we are, rises from within. Okay? Well, this is, of course, a lie. Who we are is defined by God. It's defined at your birth by how God created you, and it's defined at your redemption by how God redeemed you. God tells us who we are. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to decide. God defines us. He defines us. You are in Christ. You are outside of Christ. You are a man. You are a woman. Okay? God defines us. God fences us in. I cannot just declare that I am a six foot seven NBA basketball player who can dunk. Why is that? Why am I not like that? Well, that's how God made me. God did not make me six foot seven. He didn't make me six foot. Pretty bitter about that. 
But I'm not six foot seven. Why is that? Because God made me this way. He defined me this way. And there's nothing I can do to change it. I can't shape, move anything around. I can pretend, and that's what we have, a lot of pretending, okay? But that, God is the one that defines things. As Christians, we must reject the idea that truth, who we are, our identity is up for grabs, okay? It's up for grabs. In our passage today, Peter gives us part of our identity. Peter says, this is who you are. This is how you're supposed to live because of who you are. That's supposed to function, and God tells us who we are in this passage. It's really an identification passage. There's really not a whole lot of commands, not a whole lot to do. Okay? I don't even think a whole lot is going to be very new to you. Okay? But it's God identifying who we are, and specifically who we are as the gathered people of God. Who is the church? Who are we as the church? What is our role? What is our function? Okay? The, structure is pa- the structure of this passage is very simple. Okay, verse 4 is Jesus. Verse 5 is the church. Verse 6 through 8 is Jesus. Verse 9 and 10 is the church again. Okay? So Jesus, church, Jesus, church. Very simple. Okay? And really what you have is verse 4 is sort of like a summary, and verses 6 through 8 is an expansion. Okay? And verse 5 is a bit of a, sum- bit of a summary, and verse 9 through 10 is an expansion of it. Okay? So you have the church and Jesus. Jesus, church, Jesus, church. Our identity, the first thing, is our identity begins with Jesus. Begins with who is Jesus? Not who we are, but who is this Jesus? And Peter tells us who Jesus is. He says, This is who you've trusted in, this is who you believed in, this is who has saved you. Okay? And he does this. I'm going to focus on verses six through eight. We'll go back to verse four occasionally, but six through eight is where I'm going to focus when it comes to Jesus. He does this through three Old Testament passages. And if you were listening, the word here is stone. Stone-like is, is kind of the thing that ties all of this together. It's mentioned in verse 4. Verse 5, we are the stones, which we'll come back to. But verse 6, he's the cornerstone. Verse 7, he's the stone and the cornerstone. Verse 8, he's the stone and the rock of offense. And, of course, Peter is the rock, right? Peter is the Petros, the rock, writing this. And Pastor Garner preached a few weeks ago on the passage where Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And the rock is Jesus and this confession of faith. Okay, so probably all that's in the background of what Peter's thinking here and saying. But he focuses in on three Old Testament passages, all of them which mention this stone, this rejected stone. Okay, so the first is Isaiah 28, verse 16. I'm going to read these passages. Uh, Isaiah 26, 28 is verse 6. Isaiah, I saw, sorry, Psalm 118 is verse 7, and Isaiah 8 is verse 8. Okay, so I'm just going to read these and talk about these briefly. And just one comment here. If you want to know what the New Testament writers are thinking and saying, go to the Old Testament. I mean, if they, especially if they quote a passage, but even if they don't quote a passage, what is Peter saying here? We don't have to guess. Isaiah is going to tell us exactly what Peter is saying here. We can call the rule of faith. We can go back and review that together. Okay, so here is Isaiah 28, and I'm going to read through um, a few verses here, but the verse that's quoted is Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come for us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. So this is Israel. Israel's made a covenant with death. Not a covenant with God. They made a covenant with death. And if you want to summarize the book of Isaiah in one short summary, it is like Israel's been disobedient. She's going to go into exile, and then God's going to return and redeem her. Isaiah is 66 chapters long, so that's a very short summary. But that's what Isaiah is talking about. Then God says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, not evil, not falsehood, not lies, but justice and righteousness. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm, overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. So Israel has disobeyed God. Israel's left God, and God is saying, I'm going to put a cornerstone in place. In Zion, which you think of Zion, the hill where Jerusalem was, Mount Zion, all of that, okay, up where the temple was, I'm going to put a cornerstone there. Now, there was already a cornerstone, right? There's already a cornerstone of the temple, the literal temple. But he's talking about something else. He's talking about Jesus, talking about a redeemer, and put a savior as a cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be put to shame, as our translation says, all right? Now, Psalm 118. I'm so tempted to read the entire of entirety of Psalm 118, but it's a little long. But Psalm 118 is magnificent, and it's really, the whole passage is in the background of what Peter's saying here. In fact, I mean, I could just spend this entire sermon quoting passages, because Peter, this whole thing is one long series of passages strung together from the Old Testament. Just piles upon piles of Old Testament allusions here. Okay, so Psalm 118 begins with this, this verse. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It also ends with that verse. Okay, Psalm 118 begins and ends with that. And of course, our passage ends with mercy as well. Verse 10 ends with mercy as well. All right? So what is happening in Psalm 118? Nations are coming in. Whoever the psalmist is, maybe David, whoever, he's getting attacked and he cries out to God for deliverance. He cries out to God to rescue him. And God delivers him. And he praises God. And this is what he says. Yahweh has not given me over to death. And the psalmist then says, he will go through the gates of righteousness so he might praise Yahweh. Then he says, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Okay? So this rejected cornerstone, okay, now, we, now we don't just have a cornerstone, but we have a rejected cornerstone in Psalm 118 that now has become the chief cornerstone, and it is built, he's building this temple up from this thing. And it leads to praise and worship of Yahweh. Okay, so the cornerstone, then the rejected cornerstone, and then Isaiah 8. Hear this one. For thus the Lord spoke, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Talking to Isaiah. Don't walk in the way of this people. When they say, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. So now we have this cornerstone, then we have this rejected cornerstone, and now we have this stone that isn't just rejected, but now it's coming in judgment. Okay, so there's like a flow through the passage, a way Peter's thinking here and working this through. Okay, so the cornerstone, precious, elect, who believes in him will not be put to shame, rejected though by men, verse 4 and verse 7, rejected by men, and that rejected stone becomes a, st a rock of stumbling, a stone of offense, okay, to Israel specifically, but to anyone who rejects Jesus, all right? Now, why does Peter feel the necessity to tell us this? What is he getting at? And this is always a good question to ask yourself. Why is this here? Why is this here? Well, the answer is that these people in 1 Peter are going to go through persecution, and they're going to go through trial. They've already, they've already mentioned it back in chapter 1. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And remember, the true temple is still there. 
Okay? So there's always this opportunity to go back. Always this opportunity to abandon the cornerstone. Okay? To leave Jesus. And so what Peter is saying here is, you can trust in Jesus. Your trust is not misplaced. You need to hold fast to him. Okay? And this is kind of the idea that he's been getting at through the first couple of chapters. The reliability of Christ's work is essential when the pressure is put on. When the, when the temperature rises and things get difficult and things get hard, Peter's saying, you have to trust in this cornerstone. He will not put you to shame. He will not break down. And we've all trusted people who we should not have trusted, right? Trusted situations we should not have trusted. And maybe you trusted a chair you should not have trusted. And you sat down in there, there it went, there it went. We've all trusted things we should not have trusted. And they've come back to bite us. Well, Peter is saying, you can put your faith wholly in Jesus and he will not let you down. Jesus is always better than advertised. It's one of my favorite sayings. Always better than advertised. Now, what Peter obviously is not saying is, this is going to be easy. He's not saying that. But he's saying, in the end, you will have glory and you will not have shame. In the end, you will be exalted. You will not be torn down. Okay? That's his point. He doesn't want them, as they go through all this difficulty, he does not want them abandoning Jesus. Okay? Let me give you one example here. In verses 6 and 7, there's this kind of interplay in this passage between shame and honor. Okay, shame and honor. So I want to show this to you because it's kind of not very clear in some English translations. Mine, it isn't. Yours might be a little clearer. But beginning of verse 7, it says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Okay? Now, in my translation, he is, is in italics. And that means it's not there in the original language. Okay? So translation should be, Therefore, to you who believe, honor. The word there is better translated honor. In fact, the word is translated honor in chapter 1, verse 7. To be maybe found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's translated honor. So now if we read 6 and 7 back to back, this is what it says. He who believes in him will not, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, there will be honor. There will be honor. Okay? So this is the same idea in chapter 1. You can trust in Jesus, but in the end, he will exalt you. He will not let you down. He will not fail you. He is the chosen, precious cornerstone, the solid rock, the firm foundation. Right? So that's the first thing. The first thing Peter wants to understand is the firmness of Christ and our trust in him, that we can believe in him and not not, we don't need to worry that somehow he's going to let us down. Of course, all the Old Testament quotes reinforce this idea by telling us this is not something that just happened now. It's something that's been planned for centuries, okay? Been there from the beginning of what God was going to do, okay? So he's a cornerstone and we can trust in him and lean upon him. But twice he tells us he's rejected. So I want to focus on this. So not only is Jesus the cornerstone, but he's the cornerstone rejected by men, okay? Rejected by men, you can expect, again, what Peter's saying here is you can expect to be rejected by the world as well. It should not surprise you. These people in 1 Peter are about to go through hard, difficult times. Some of them already are going through difficult times. They've already lost property. It doesn't look like they've lost their life yet, but that could be coming. Similar to the situation in the book of Hebrews, okay? Loss of property, maybe loss of jobs, things like that. So they've already been rejected, and what Peter's saying is, why does this surprise you? Why does this shock you? The world has always attacked the church. The world has always hates Jesus. And if he can't get to Jesus, it will get to his people, his body. If he can't get to the head, it will get to the body. And that's what Peter's saying. Yes, he's rejected, but the value of a thing is not determined by the world, but the value of a thing is determined by God. So Jesus, while rejected, 
is precious or honorable in the sight of God. He is not tossed aside by God. And the same goes for us. And the same goes for us. We might be rejected by the world. We might be hated by the world. The world might consider us not very valuable, not very important, not any of that sort of stuff. But Paul says, the foolish things of the world shame the wise. And that's basically what uh, Peter's saying here as well. The rejected things, the things rejected by men, are the very things God elevates to a position of power and a position of authority. So because Christ is chosen by the Father, because Christ is chosen by the Father and precious, men are left with a choice. Okay, and this gets us to the third thing. So you've got the cornerstone, the rejected cornerstone, rejected by men, but chosen by God. And now he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Men are left with a choice. Men can either choose Jesus. Jesus is the divide line. Jesus is the one that divides men. Okay? So Peter moves from the cornerstone, the firm foundation for us, moves to the rejection by men, and now he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to men. He is the dividing line between the righteous and the wicked. Jesus is the dividing line. Men love their sin. Men hate the one who separates them from their sin. And this is what happens. They stumble because Jesus is, tells them you must leave your sin behind. And they don't want that. They want to hold on to it. It's funny. Augustine was talking about a, a Greek philosopher who knew about Jesus and knew about the work of Christ. And he said the Greek philosopher could not come to Jesus because he could not fathom that God would come in the flesh. It was a stumbling block for him that God would come in the flesh. All right. So this Messiah, this cornerstone, who's rejected by men but elevated by God, becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to men. He is the dividing line. He's the focal point of it all. Where you end up depends entirely on what you do with Jesus. Okay? That's what Peter's saying here. And if you reject Jesus, you stumble and you, you're um, appointed to this end. If you believe on Jesus, you will not be put to shame. Okay? So that's who Jesus is. Jesus is this cornerstone rejected by men but elevated by God and a dividing line or a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense for people who do not trust in him. Okay, do not trust him. So who are we? And it shouldn't surprise us that the things that are ascribed to Jesus are also ascribed to us. Okay? Jesus is the living stone. We are the living stones. He is the head. We are the body. Jesus is a temple. We are a temple. Jesus is a priest. We are priests. Jesus offers sacrifices. We offer sacrifices. Okay? This is what it is. We take on who Jesus is. We become like Christ, all right? So there's kind of three pictures here that uh, Peter paints for us in this passage. First, he says we, all of it revolves around the temple, priesthood, uh, sacrifices, living stones, spiritual house, okay? So we are the temple of God. We are the house of God. What does this mean? The temple of God is where God dwells. It is the house of God. He comes in. If you think about the Old Testament, think about Exodus. At the end of Exodus, Moses gets done building the tabernacle, and the glory of God comes down. And Moses cannot even go in there because the glory is so magnificent. Moses, even Moses, who says spoke with God face to face, cannot go into the tabernacle because of the glory of God. Same thing in 1 Kings 8. When Solomon builds the temple, the glory of God comes down. And the priests cannot minister. They have to stop serving in the temple because of the glory of God. We think about that and we say, wouldn't that be magnificent? Can you imagine being there when Solomon's praying? This huge temple that's taken a long time to build. He builds this huge temple, and they're just killing animals everywhere, sacrifices everywhere, you know, fire, and there's basins, and there's silver, and there's gold, and there's pillars, and there's thousands upon thousands of people, and the Shekinah glory comes down. The priests have to come out of the temple because of how glorious it is. And we think to ourselves, that is glorious. 
that is magnificent. But it is not as magnificent as us. <laughs> it is not as magnificent as the New Testament church of God. It's not as magnificent. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stones came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to the end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So the point here is that we are a greater temple. And we don't think about it that way. We think about that temple in the Old Testament, we're like, wow, that would have been amazing to be part of that. So magnificent. Peter's like, no, you are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of God. God dwells in us. And I think he's speaking mainly corporately here. Obviously, we all have the Spirit dwelling within us. We're indwelt by the Spirit. But Peter's thinking mainly the church. The church of God is the place where all his glory is present. And we look out on Sunday mornings and we say to ourselves, really? I mean, is this more glorious than the Old Testament temple? Is this more glorious than the tabernacle? Have you seen the people I got to sit beside? Okay, really? And God says, yes, it is. The eyes of faith know that this church is more glorious than the Old Testament temple. More glorious, more magnificent. So you are this spiritual house. We are this spiritual house, spiritual, filled with the Spirit. We are living stones. We are priests in the house of God. And a priest was someone who obviously offered sacrifices. Their entire life was devoted to God. Their entire life was devoted to Him. When think about priests, you are a priest in the house of God. Um, Paul says it in Romans 12 that we don't make our bodies a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, all right? We also hear this in Christ's statement, to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. When the Old Testament animal was killed, especially in the ascension offering, when the Old Testament animal was killed, what was being said? He said, I offer my life entirely up to God. That's what's being said. It's all yours, okay? And that's what it meant to be a priest. Priests did not have other duties, okay? A priest wasn't off doing other things. His entire focus was on the house of God. Now, what we tend to do here is we tend to say, okay, if I'm a priest, if I'm going to devote myself entirely to God, what that means is I need to do, become some type of minister or do something spiritual, pastor, missionary, you know, something like that. That's how we tend to think about it. But that's not how the Old Testament, talk, New Testament talks about it. In Romans 12, when Paul, after Paul says, make your body a living sacrifice, what does he say next? Become a pastor? Become a priest? Become a missionary? No, doesn't say that. He says, watch your speech. Don't lie. Be kind to each other. Okay? This is not about becoming this sort of levels of, of holiness, okay? Everyone is a priest, and in your day-to-day life, you're to function like a priest of God. And we'll, get, but we'll come back to that at the end of what that means. So Peter says we're a royal priesthood later. So temple, priest, sacrifices. That's what we're here to do. The second thing he calls us is a holy nation. And this is super controversial. I don't know if you guys have been watching anything anywhere, but what is a nation anymore? Kind of like the identity issue at the beginning. What is a nation? Who is a nation? You know, how does, what, what does a nation consist of? Is it a common geographical boundary? Is it a common language? Is it a common race? What is a nation? Well, again, in scripture, though, the question is, what does the Bible say? And here, Peter's quoting directly from Exodus 19. Exodus 19 precedes Exodus 20, and Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Okay? So this is right before the Ten Commandments, and this is what it says. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess. What does Peter mean by nation? We don't have to guess. He tells us. When Moses went up to God, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what is Peter saying when he calls them a holy nation? He's saying, you are the true Israel. You are the people I have called out of darkness into my light. You are the ones I've given the law. You are my people. That's what he's saying. So it really doesn't have anything to do with how we think about nations so much. It has to do with being underneath Christ and being underneath his rule. And what's interesting here is Matthew 21. I want to read this to you. Matthew 21. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 21. So Matthew 21 is the story of the vine dressers. Okay, remember this story? They have God has, the guy has a vineyard. It's God. <laughs> he has a vineyard, and he sends people there, servants there, and they keep killing them. They kill the servant, and they kill the servant, and they kill the servant. And then finally he sends his son, and they kill the son. Okay, so that's the end of the parable, and this is what Jesus says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said, that's these guys, said to Jesus, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken and whoever falls, it will grind him to powder. There's little doubt in my mind that Peter has this passage in the background, as well as Exodus 19, when he says this, okay? This is exactly what happened. Israel did not believe. Israel did not trust. And so the Jesus, the stone, fell on them. And it hasn't crushed them entirely yet. That's coming in 1 Peter. It hasn't, when 1 Peter's written, it hadn't happened yet. But it's coming, okay? That stone's going to fall on them. And guess what? The kingdom is going to be given to another nation, given to the Gentiles, and taken away from the Jews. Now, of course, there are Jews in it, part of it uh, at this time, but the nation is given to the Gentiles. The Gentiles become this holy nation. We just read about that in um, Romans 11, some of our reading there, okay? So what Peter is saying here is you are the true Israel. You are the true people of God. Paul says the same thing in Galatians where he says, those who are faith are sons of Abraham. The kingdom has been taken away from them and given to you, okay? Given to you. You are the ones Okay, so you got the temple, priesthood, sacrifices, you got this holy nation, and finally, Peter says, we are God's own special people, his chosen people. Okay, and this is, there's numerous Old Testament passages this could be referring to. I think it's partly Exodus 19. There's, there's like Isaiah 23, numerous passages there. When you like someone, okay, or you like a group of people, you'll say, those are my people. Right? Maybe it's friends, maybe it's family. Or if you don't like someone, you'll say, those are not my people, right? <laughs> these are my people, these are not my people. What Jesus looks at us and he says, those are my people. Those are my people. Those are the people I love. Those are the people I care for. Those are the people I chose. Those are my own special people. They were not a people, but now they are the people of God. Okay? Nothing compares to being part of the people of God. There is no privilege you have. Nothing in your bank account, nothing in your past, nothing in your family, nothing in the history of this country, nothing we have that compares to being part of the people of God. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have this privileged place. And Peter's reminding this because they're tempted to throw it away. Okay? There's always this temptation to, to leave, especially in times of persecution. So there's this temptation to leave and to throw things away. And Peter's saying, no, this is this great privilege that you have being called a child of God. We just baptized Phoebe. She's a child of God now. There's no greater privilege she will ever have. It's so magnificent that she got adopted. 
by, by Josh and Elizabeth, but it's a greater privilege to be brought into the house of God. Such a privilege in all of us, that is the case. There's nothing, nothing compares to being part of the people of God. Okay. All right, so I'm gonna give you a couple of, that's kind of the passage, there's a lot more here. I, I feel like um, <laughs> there's so many Old Testament passages in the background here, so many ways we could go. We didn't even talk about mercy, really, and verse 10 and what mercy is. But I wanna give you just a couple of things that we can take from this passage that are worth considering, okay? First, our identity as the people of God, as the church, is our fundamental identity. Belonging to Jesus and being part of his people is the compass that guides everything else we do, okay? So you ask, who are you? First and foremost, I'm a child of God. I'm part of the church of God. I'm redeemed by Christ. That is fundamentally who we are. It's the compass that drives everything. And you think about these people when they get wrapped up in, like if, if I've met people like this who are transitioning, quote unquote, uh, from being a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy, their entire world revolves around that. Everything revolves around that identity, Okay. And it's wicked and sinful, okay, it's wrong, but everything revolves around that identity. As Christians, that's kind of how we want to think. We want to be so obsessive about being a child of God, and obviously we're living the truth and they're living a lie, but that sort of passion for a thing is what we want to have. And Peter's going to go on and talk about government, talk about families, and talk about employers, and talk about all these other things. But the very beginning, he wants us to understand this is who you are. Everything flows downstream from this identity. Everything flows down. Our families, our jobs, our neighborhoods, what we do in our state, what we do in our country, everything flows down from being part of Jesus and being part of his church. This does not mean we cannot love other things. It just means loving those other things must always be subservient to our part of the, as being, being part of the people of God. It must always come underneath that. And what that does for us is gives us courage. It gives us courage, okay? We are God's people. We are chosen. We have this firm cornerstone. We don't need to shrink back. We don't need to be afraid of what man can do to us. We can hold fast. So it gives us courage and it gives us direction. What are we supposed to do in different circumstances? Well, what would a priest do? Okay. What would a priest of God do? I belong to the family of God. What does the family of God do? Okay. So that's kind of that's what Peter's saying. This is your fundamental identity. This is who you are as God's people. And the second thing is, uh, just in the middle of this, there's really no commands in this passage. Okay, There's almost no commands. Even this one that I'm going to bring out really isn't an imperative, a command. But in verse 9, it says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is one thing a priest does? Well, a priest praises God. A priest praises God. And this is why complaining is so unbecoming of Christians. Okay? We are priests of the living God. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We're built on that cornerstone. Why do we complain? Okay? And we're all guilty of it, aren't we? We all whine. I mean, I remember one time... I thought to myself, I don't think I whine very much. Um, I remember, and this was while I worked in the grocery store, a lot to whine about there. So I, I thought, I probably don't whine very much. I thought pretty highly of myself. So I started watching myself throughout the day. I had a little notebook, and I just kind of kept track of how many times I whined throughout the day. It was astonishing. It was awful. It's the worst thing I've ever done. I'm like, I thought I was doing this great guy who did not complain and didn't whine. I whined a lot more than I thought, complained a lot more. Priests don't whine. They give thanks to God. They praise God for his kindness and his goodness, they declare his mighty works. That word, the praises in verse 9, could be called mighty works of God. In the Old Testament, that word is used for that idea, the mighty works of God. Okay? Creation and redemption. A lot of you are starting school. When you get to science class, you get to math class, this is the mighty works of God. This is what God has done in creation. He's made this world. He's, he's governed history. And then obviously in redemption as well. He's saved us 
and redeemed us. Here, here's Psalm 78. Listen to what it says. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. That is why we have been called. So we might praise God, praise him to our children, praise him to our spouses, praise him to our neighbors, okay? And one more verse on this, Hebrews 13, 15, which has a lot of priestly language as well. Therefore, by him, that is by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Okay. So one of our great jobs as a priest is to offer thanks and praise to God, to proclaim his goodness around the dinner table, you know, at school, to our friends and to our neighbors. Okay. I think some of us get a little embarrassed by that, and it can be done poorly. I will grant it can be done poorly. We've all met people like that. But we should not be ashamed of giving thanks to the Lord and praising his mighty works anywhere we're at. It should never be a point of shame for us. So our identity and the church is fundamental, and we were made, we were created, redeemed to give praise to Almighty God. This is who we are. This is our identity, the spirit-filled house of God, priest offering sacrifices, a holy nation, God's own special people, so we might trust and praise Christ, our cornerstone. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you that you have redeemed us and called us out and strengthened us. We pray that you would give us grace to not just hear this, but give us grace to obey it. Give us grace to shape our minds and our hearts by uh, these words that we've heard today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.